You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome, welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy Saturday to you and yours. We're well into the weekend. And as we like to do now, we have a special Saturday edition of Fearless uh, to get your weekend, to get deeper into your weekend and get you going on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, we have a very special guest interview we're gonna do with a man who's been on the show. You've seen, uh, you. For surely you follow his social media feed. Leonidas Johnson has written a book, an important book about critical race theory, Raising Victims, The Pernicious Rise of Critical Race Theory. Uh, Leonidas, friend of the show, he's been on the show before, been here with us in Nashville. He's got one of the best uh, Twitter feeds uh, going over social media. I suggest you follow him. He's written an important book about a topic that we address and talk about all the time. It, it, it's obviously, it's focusing in on critical race theory, but critical race theory just is really talking about, and the reason, it's, the reason why it's such an important topic is because it's at the heart of much of the racial divide uh, over social media, in our school systems, in our educational systems. Uh, Leonidas, welcome back to Fearless. Why did you write the book and, you know, how long did it take you to put this together? How long has it been on, been on your heart to do this? Uh, just un give us a little bit of your motivation and what inspired you. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for having me, Jason. I tell you, man, every time I come on, you hype me up so, so much. man. I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, the whole issue of race and race identity and, and critical race theory, uh, anti-racism, uh, Black Lives Matter, all, all of these issues have been something that I've been talking about for a long time. And, it, you know, the, the whole idea of racial, my, my main passion is to move into a post-racial colorblind society. And that's something that I've been pushing for a long time. And so all of the lies that surround critical race theory and all the lies that surround racial identity politics and pushing white privilege and all white people are racist and, and the entire system is imbibed with racism and all of this racial division has just been, you know, something I've been attacking for, for a long period, long period of time. And the book was just the natural genesis of that. It was things that I had been saying anyway, things that I had been talking about anyway. And, uh, a publisher and an agent approached me and asked me if I wanted to write a book. And, you know, I, like I said, I, I had already been saying these things anyway, and I'd have been putting those thoughts out there anyway. And I thought it was, I thought it was absolutely the time to do it. So, uh, it took about a year to get it all together and now it's out and, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Leonidas, you said, and it's not that I disagree with your goal, but I want you to unpack why it's important. You said you want to live 
in a post-racial society. There's a lot right. of people on the other side that, you know, oh, he just, he, he wants to do away with race because he's scared. Why is it important for us to live in a post-racial society? Yeah, when you bring up the idea of colorblindness or moving to a post-racial society, people who support critical race theory or people who just attach to race very deeply are very antagonistic toward that. And they'll say things like, oh, you you just don't like being black or you hate black people or you want racism to thrive or, you know, all of these different attacks. But listen, I, I adhere directly to the words of Dr. Martin Luther King and his dream of wanting to move into a society where people are judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. I'm very individualistic. I, I believe in individualism and in that we should see each other as unique individuals created in the image of God and not as collective racial groups or any any other arbitrary factor you can you can come up with it, right? Where we're talking about gender or sexuality or, or whatever it may be. But to collectivize identity that removes the agency and the, the uniqueness of the person themselves and attaches this other arbitrary identity. And we've seen that throughout history, how detrimental that can be, because that's what racism is. It's attaching that collective sort of identity to people based on skin color. So why would we ever want to perpetuate that? Then, and what's happening with critical race theory and these other ideologies is they are treating racism and racial discrimination as something with utility. They believe that the past was awful. I think, I think most people would agree that the racism in the past was awful. But what they're saying now is that they can flip the script and they can use racism to their own advantage and, uh, and that there's utility to it. And I disagree with that wholly. I think if we're going to fight racism and we're going to defeat this, this system that we think uh, where racism is perpetuated, then... Uh, the best way to do that is to get rid of race altogether or to at least de-emphasize it to a point where it's about as consequential as hair color and eye color. So you and your wife, smart, educated, black, you're raising black children. There will be mm -hmm. people listening to you and say, well, hold on, this whole critical race theory and diversity, it's it's. It's a benefit to your kids. It, it, it's your kids are going to be educated and, and, and they'll be better served by a society that factors in race and favors black kids over white kids because of the alleged privilege that that white kids have. Why wouldn't you and why shouldn't other black parents why, why shouldn't they want their kids to have some sort of advantage in the culture? Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. 
Well, I, unless you think that you can fight racism with racism, uh, <laughs> obviously it doesn't matter what the perceived advantages would be. Uh, yeah, a communism by itself, which you know, it, it, I'll, I'll draw this through line because critical race theory is rooted in Marxism and in, in this communist mentality, but communism itself preaches these sort of uh, these sort of benefits that you're going to have these advantages in society if we move into this sort of communist utopia and it's it's very twisted logic so you think that you're going to have these gains you're going to have these advantages but what actually happens is the opposite you end up causing more damage and causing more detrimental things and yeah again in the past white yeah there were white racists who believed that same thing they believed that you know, perpetuating a system of racial oppression would give their children benefits, and they did. And uh, you know, so would you say? Would people say that that was virtuous because they were looking out for their own interest, and by by uh, uh, oppressing other people to do so? And clearly not. You know, it doesn't matter if something is going to benefit you directly if it's if it's immoral and unethical on its face, and particularly if it's something that's not going to work, like equity or something like that. So I, I, I understand the premise, but it just doesn't make sense on its face because not only is it not going to work, it's unethical and immoral. Well, and I'm right there with you. I'm just playing devil's advocate because what I hear sure. from these people is like they're not legitimate believers in God and they're not legitimate believers in their own talents and abilities. I want to compete on an equal playing field. Because when I beat everyone, I want to know that I did that and it wasn't some advantage. And I think that your kids, through the parenting of you and your wife uh, and the, the development you guys give them, will be able to compete with any other, anybody else's kid, regardless of skin color. And so you have a sincere confidence, not just in yourself, but more so in God and being an image bearer of God. And if you just follow his principles and the rules that are laid out, your kids will be just fine and the whole society will be better instead of what, what we're doing is promoting a lot of racial animus. And th that's what right. has just like blows my mind is like, and people have acted like, well, Whitlock has changed, and I haven't. I've never liked racism or discrimination or bias, but, but sure. I do have to admit, and I wonder if you would agree, is that it seems obvious, but I just got to ask the question. In my lifetime, and I'm you know 25 probably years older than you, but in my lifetime, it's like I see more overt racism coming from the proponents of critical race theory, whether black or white, than I see from the alleged evangelical conservative white people. I, I, I see more racism coming from the other direction th than, yeah. than I used to see coming from white people or whatever, whoever they classified as racist. It, it just seems like the whole thing has been reversed. And, and instead of eliminating racism, we just want to benefit from racism.
That's exactly the case. It's treating racism as if it has utility because it's coming in the opposite direction. So, and Ibram X. Kendi said that explicitly, right? He said that in order to remedy past discrimination, you need present discrimination. In order to remedy present discrimination, you need future discrimination. So he said explicitly that in order to get rid of the sins of racism in the past, that we need to employ racism in the present against white people. So it's upending this perceived hierarchy and engaging in in racist behavior. And people feel justified by doing that. And in order to get away with it, a lot of times they'll redefine the language because it's all about manipulation, Jason. It's it's all about changing language and, and hiding the ball and pretending that they're doing something else. So now racism needs to be redefined so that the actions of these people can't be defined as racism. We can't call it racism because they technically don't have power. <laughs> and then power Power is redefined because I mean, clearly they do have power. But yeah, you see those kind of things all the time. And then uh, like another word that they redefine is the word compassion. And I think you were kind of hinting at that there. But there's this idea that it's compassionate to push these radical ideas and to teach children that they're victims or that they have some sense of collective guilt. And it's the complete opposite of what compassion actually is and how we should live as as Christ followers is the complete antithesis. And so I, I always tell the story of uh, Nemo and Gil in Finding Nemo and how when Nemo got caught in the filter tank, in the filter tube in the fish tank and Gil comes out right and he, he doesn't let him wallow in his victimhood he tells the other fish not to not to help him get out and he tells Nemo to swim out on his own and Nemo's like oh I, my, I have a gimpy fin or whatever I can't do it I'm too weak I'm, I'm a victim the, the fish tank is oppressing me I'm in this filter tube I don't know what happened like all of these all of these excuses he had at his disposal and Gil could have he could have acknowledged those, but he didn't. He told Nemo to swim out on his own because he knew that it would encourage his strength and resiliency, his courage and bravery, and, and, and allow him to do those things on his own. And that's what we should be teaching children. And that's the kind of mentality that we should have around race. You just touched on this, but I believe you explore race as an idol and how and, and you just touched on it. Christianity and critical race theory are incompatible. Could you expound on that? Yeah, well, I mean, people who embrace critical race theory treat race as if it is a religion, right? And it, it's almost like it's almost like going to Bible school. Uh, you know, you you go to university, you uh, get trained in the theology, and then you go out to evangelize and proselytize, and uh, or or to be an inquisitor <laughs> to to hunt down heretics and and punish apostates or, or or whatever it may be. But race is elevated to such a significant level in people's lives, uh, particularly in the critical race theory framework, that it supplants everything else and that includes your identity in Christ. So you see a lot of times churches will push critical race theory or Black Lives Matter or they'll they'll put up murals of George Floyd or, or or whatever. And that becomes their entire gospel. That's what they that's what they preach. They preach social justice and critical race theory. That's the entire essence of that church. And so they're I the entire the entire essence of Christianity and their identity in Christ has been completely completely replaced by race. And so I, it, you can't do both. You have to choose which God you're going to serve. And, and a lot of people have chosen to, ch- chosen to follow race. 
What do you think of just the term racial justice or social justice? They, 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 justice is just justice, in my opinion. But what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think justice does not require a, qual- a qualifier. And once you give it a qualifier, it's not really justice anymore because there's some the, the qualifier signifies that there's something else underlying it and there's some other ulterior motive that's happening. So you have racial justice or climate justice or or just the general social justice. And what those things mean is that they want justice to bend the knee to the ideology, whether it's racial or or the climate stuff or or whatever it may be. And they don't want the blindness. They don't want the equality. They they don't want the general fairness of justice. They want to, well, I, I use the word vengeance in when it comes to race. They want to have some sort of redemption or some sort of vengeful acts committed against people they deem to be the villains of the past. And that sense is racial justice. And there's a good example of this is the Kyle Rittenhouse case where it had nothing to do with black people whatsoever. But somehow that was an example of our, our lack of racial justice, <laughs> which yeah, makes no sense whatsoever unless you realize that what they wanted to do was they wanted to punish Kyle Rittenhouse for being white. Like he, they wanted retribution because he was white or because the hypothetical scenario of what might have happened if he had been a black person or whatever is completely imaginary. But that's what they mean when they say racial justice is that they want vengeance. They want justice to be viewed through a, a racial, a racially idealized, idealized lens. And another example is the Memphis case. The the uh, five black police officers <laughs> that, go that beat the black suspect. Yeah, he, I mean, clearly <laughs> makes no sense to make that a racial issue. But suddenly we're talking about white supremacy and racial justice. It's it's absolutely absurd. But you have to understand that, uh, particularly critical race theory, it, people see racism in the entire structure of our system they think that it's imbibed in everything everything around us every it's woven into the very fabric of our society so that means that everything can be viewed through the lens of white supremacy and and uh racism including justice including free speech including our constitution and and the equality under law i mean pick pick a foundational principle and they think it's racist and it needs to be dismantled or filtered through a lens of racial, of racialized ideology. So I don't have kids, you do. And I would be scared to death if my children were being raised to think of themselves as victims. That's Mm -hmm. not the mentality, the proper mentality to have success in America or any place on the planet. Sure. Yeah, I mean, my kids currently, I mean, we talked about racial identity earlier. My kids currently don't even have a racial identity. They don't see themselves as black or white or or mixed or, or anything like that. They have family members that span the spectrum of uh, human variation, <laughs> racial variation, and they see them as their family. Same thing with friends. They they have white friends, black friends, uh, Asian friends. I mean, they they see their friends as friends, and they so they don't see the world that way. 
And I hope that continues as long as possible. Uh, homeschooling has helped us maintain that and protect them a little bit from from it. And I hope I hope we continue to do that for as long as possible. But we teach them to be overcomers. We teach them to be uh, to not find. Uh, you know, that sense of uh, like, oh, uh, woe is me. Look how look how oppressed I am. And, uh, you know, everything else is every, everything that happens to me is somebody else's fault. It's that it's the difference between having an external and internal locus of control. Right. And we teach our kids to have an internal locus of control. And I, th- I think that is what's sorely lacking from our society, Jason, is that there's this sense that these external factors completely control people's lives. And I mean, that in some sense removes agency from everybody and that, you know, choices and behaviors don't really matter because it's the system's fault. It's society's fault somehow to blame. And so you're a victim of your circumstances. You're a victim of society. Um, I know that you're a black police officer and you beat up this black guy and now he's dead, but it's not really your fault because it's, it's actually white supremacy in the system. I, it's so it's, it's absurd. And it's, and you're right. It's very dangerous to teach that to children because you're instilling this sense of learned helplessness in them like like Nemo in the in the filter tube feeling like they it doesn't matter if they try it doesn't matter what they do or what choices they make it, the system's going to determine their outcomes and it's just it, it's disempowering and it's it's wrong you and I both use social media you and I both complain about social media <laughs> do do do, yeah. do you do you think it's improved under Elon Musk? And, and oh, he, man. before you address that, just when I think of what has been the steroid for critical race theory, I think yeah. of Twitter. I think of social media. That has really been the fuel for critical race theory. Twitter is, to me, like ground zero or mecca for critical race theory, and that's why... Mm. I find Twitter a necessary evil because I'm in the media, but I just find it a net negative. Not not just Twitter, Facebook and, and Instagram. I mean, pretty much uh, TikTok. I mean, any 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 social media platform I think has been uh, contributing to this in in a deep way. And I mean, I I've made the point before that you know before social media. People with a particular mental illness or you know, crazy ideas, they would just be isolated by with their crazy. They would be on some island somewhere by themselves, screaming at the air about their crazy ideas. But now that we have social media, they can find other likewise crazy people to, to interact with and build a coalition and make themselves seem like they're much bigger and, and much more influential than, than they actually are. And I think you see that with critical race theory. I, I think you see that with gender theory. I think you see that with the LGBT stuff. Uh, it, it's the same thing. It gives, them, it gives those kind of people a platform to be loud and to bully others and to really perpetuate these ideas. And then you get people on the fence who, uh, who, who are scared to speak out against it. And, uh, you know, they don't want to be bullied uh, for understandably. And th- maybe they're not even sure like, well, critical race theory, for instance, like people, there's a lot of people that don't really understand it or don't understand what it is, which is one of the reasons I wrote the book. 
and maybe they they kind of go along with the manipulative language, right? So it's like, yeah, I want my kids to learn history, and I don't like racism, so I'm going to go along with this. Um, and the media is telling me it's a good thing, so I, you know, I'm going to I'm going to go. So uh, I, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of that that goes into it. But I, I think you're right. I think social media has been a a significant propagator of it, and. Uh, whether it's better under Elon Musk, I, I don't know that. I haven't seen. Well, I'll, I'll tell you that my reach, which a lot of people have been locking their accounts on Twitter because their reach has been reduced. Uh, I've noticed that my my reach has been reduced pretty substantially as well. So there's that aspect where, you know, not as many of my followers are seeing my tweets as they used to and things like that. Uh, but the general atmosphere on Twitter. I don't, I don't know that it's better. I don't know that I've noticed a major difference. I don't know. When, when, when I think of critical race theory and, and I know we've talked and you, you said a lot and I just want to expound on, but, but where I think of critical race theories, biggest impact or most easy to see impact is its manipulation of history. And, and mm-hmm. it's like the whole 1619 project from the New York Times, it, it comes from the critical race theory mindset and it's, it's telling of history in a way to justify critical race theory. Is, yeah. Do you think that's accurate? hundred <laughs> percent. I mean, well, the first thing is that everything about critical race theory is manipulative. It's all about manipulation and making it seem like something else in order to infuse this cultural revolution. So the end goal is cultural revolution. Everything else is manipulation. Uh, but I mean, I don't know if you knew this or not, Jason, but that before white people showed up, everything was utopian. Everything, you know, all the non-white people were dancing around with unicorns and butterflies and care bears all the time. And then white people showed up and destroyed everything. So that, that, that has to be the case, right? That, that, that's the kind of history that uh, critical race theorists push forward, that everything was great. Everything was fine and beautiful. And then white people somehow just destroyed everything and caused all these problems. And slavery is central to that. You know, like they pretend that slavery is uh, uniquely American and central to our our nation's ideology and ideals, and 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 continues to impact us in in all of these invisible ways and, and whatnot. Never mind that slavery existed for thousands of years uh, prior, and that every you go back through everybody's human history, everybody's uh, family tree. And you'll find people that were both slaves and slave owners. Uh, just about every people group on on the globe have been both slave and slave owners at some point. So uh, Thomas Sowell likes to say that, you know, it wasn't particularly remarkable that slavery existed in America. What was remarkable was that it was abolished. But that's not particularly useful for critical race theorists. They don't like to focus on that aspect. But it, yeah, it's very manipulative because, you know, people people respond emotionally to this stuff, right? Uh, there's a very real history of things that happened in the past, that bad things happened in the past. We know that. And people respond emotionally to it. And I, I think people know that they can use that past and they can use that history or distorted history anyway to manipulate people and get them to do things that maybe they would otherwise not do. So it, it's, again, it's all about manipulation. 
when they change the meanings of words, they, they, they distort history. Uh, I think about that proud family clip that, that came out the other day. Uh, I didn't watch the show, but I saw it on Twitter of them demanding reparations and talking about slaves built this country and, and all of this other stuff. It's manipulation, just trying to get in people's emotions, trying to make them angry and resentful and, and, uh, grievance mongering. And, uh, then you can control them. You get people emotional, you can control them. Leonidas, is there a specific audience that you most hope reads your book or you were thinking about as you wrote the book? Is there a particular group of people you most want to reach? The people who aren't quite sure um, or who don't quite have the confidence around pushing back against critical race theory. That's who this book is for, because the book was meant to explain what critical race theory is, where it comes from as an ideology, how it's disguising itself in our society as diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism, Black Lives Matter, et cetera, et cetera, and how those ideas are infiltrating society, and then how to push back against it and um, you know, push back against the manipulative techniques that are being used to recognize them and then, and then reject them. And then also to promote the idea of colorblindness and, and moving into a post-racial society as the antidote to critical race theory and the antidote to racism itself. So yeah, I, I, there, there are many people who are already pushing back against it, who understand what it is. And, um, obviously I want them, them to read the book as well. Uh, but it's the people who are on the fence, the people who are, who don't quite have the confidence or aren't really sure, uh, how to push back against it. Those are the people that the book are for. So, and, and I already know your point of view just from this conversation, but I, I, I just want to ask this explicitly just because not everybody is, has your proper mindset. The, the, if a black person, the typical black person that watches CNN, takes a lot of their cues from uh, social media, is, is got the normal, Again, not healthy, but just the normal level of racial idolatry that we've uh, adopted here in this country as normal. Mm-hmm. How do you think that person will receive or hear or read or comprehend your book? I think it depends. I, I, I think it depends on how deeply race matters to them. And I know race matters a lot. It matters deeply to a lot of people. And I get that uh, because I'm, I'm pretty antagonistic toward the idea of racial identity in the book. And if race matters a lot to you, then it, it may it may cause you some <laughs> cause you some anger and resentment, maybe. But I, I would be hopeful that a person like that would at least be open to hearing what I have to say about it and be opening to open to consider uh, possibly having a different perspective on on race and race identity. So, uh, but the, I, I think the bulk of the book, as far as critical race theory goes, I think most people would uh, be enlightened on on if they're if they're not sure what critical race theory is and exactly it you know what it's doing to our society and its Marxist uh, its Marxist foundations. Um, if people aren't aware of that. 
then I think that it will be something that will help open their eyes to it and uh, they'll be more receptive to that. Uh, that aspect of it. And I know the colorblindness and the post-racial stuff is, is a little bit harder of a sell for people who, uh, who have a deep cultural connection to, to race. But, uh, again, like I said, I have a, I have a deep seated belief that in order to move into a racially harmonious society, uh, it needs to be a post-racial society. We need to de-emphasize skin color to the point where it's like hair color and eye color. That doesn't mean getting rid of cultural issues or, or, or culture itself, um, or, or things that you, you deem important or you hold dear. Uh, but it does mean stop caring so much about skin color and making it central to your identity. So. All right, that's Leonidas Johnson. I, I've known Leonidas for more than a year. Leonidas wants to be his generation's Thomas Sowell, if my memory serves me well, raising victims. <laughs> uh, the pernicious rise of critical race theory is I could, it's your first uh, foray step in that direction to be the Thomas Sowell of this generation, and we need a new Thomas Sowell. And so I thank you so much for writing the book. I thank you so much uh, for making the time today to come on the show. Leonidas, good luck. Uh, his generation is Thomas Sowell. This is his first book. I think it's his first book. First one that I've. <laughs> anyway, Leonidas is great. Go get his book. We need a new Thomas Sowell. Leonidas wants to be that. Awesome. All right, I hear tomorrow. That means we'll see you on Monday. Bless. We are living, get back. We are receiving all the seeds when we all want to be free. We want freedom. I just want, I want to be. I just want, I want to be. I just want, I want to be. I just want.